Alien Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little aliens don't amount to a hill of sand peas in this crazy quadrant. I'm joined in this episode once again by Gooey Fame. Gooey is a musician and a podcaster, the co-host of the Virtual Theater Podcast, and my co-host on the Backtracking Podcast. Gooey, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks. It's always fun to be here. It is great to have you back. And today we'll be talking about Profit and Loss, the 18th episode of the second season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. When William Faulkner accepted his Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950, he said that the human heart in conflict with itself is the only thing worth writing about. He wasn't a sci-fi author, but if he was, I'm sure that he would include aliens as humans when it comes to storytelling. (laughs) But what happens when your humans and aliens live in a utopia that's free from want and ostensibly conflict? Enter Deep Space Nine, an outpost on the outskirts of a war-torn region where refugees and representatives of various sovereignties struggle to survive in the shadow of looming danger. DS9 moved the focus of the franchise from the hollowed halls of Starfleet to the uncertain existence of the galaxy's fringe, where morality was conditional and convictions could get you killed. Removing the security and moral certainty of the Federation meant that the writers of DS9 were free to explore a world of spies, opportunists, and ideologues in conflict with each other and with themselves. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Gooey, it's great to have you back on the program. Yeah. And what's new with you? Oh, what is new? Um, <laughs> no, you know, uh, still a lot of weirdness right now in the world. But um, am, yeah. I am playing some of my some of my bands are playing some shows in the next few weeks and months for the first really? time. Yeah, sure. And uh, so that'll be interesting to see how it goes. Um, because I I know some people have gotten back out there, but uh, you know, there's been a lot of you know what's going on in the world. But uh, yeah. So it's yeah. it's been interesting kind of I just was practicing uh some of my band songs for the first time and and like it's it was interesting being like okay normally I'll like be like okay it's com- it, it's just like riding a bike but now it's been like you know <laughs> over a year since I played some of the songs I was yeah. like wait a minute <laughs> oh no <laughs> this, yeah uh so yeah it's it'll be interesting to see what happens Gotta brush up a little bit. Yeah, there's um of course it's uh fall is is on its way and so a lot of state fairs are opening and a lot of them have a lot of different ideas about what what's safe. And I know that my local state fair, which is one of the biggest state fairs in the country, uh, did not require masks or Ooh. even vaccinations. And they're just saying, do people, we encourage you to do the right thing. Oh, yeah. And okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think the right thing would probably be for, you know, you as an entity to ask people to, you know, meet the barest, basic, most basic level of safety that we've agreed on in society. But yeah, uh, there's, th- there's things like that. Yeah. Uh, there's things like... Uh, you know, I hear concert announcements and I see them online and and people are uh, getting ready to just get back out there because that's what we're going to do. Yeah, th- there's one uh, festival that both my bands are playing that just announced like they're requiring vaccination, proof of vaccination or like a, I think a negative test within 48 hours or something like right. that. Right. Um, and it was interesting when they posted it, they posted all these different like little infographics or what like information you know, with the festival uh, graphics and everything. And then one of the slides they posted was, uh, I guess they like pulled 
the people coming or something and they said like would you be able to show proof of vaccination if we required it and they were and like over 90 percent of people said yeah so it's funny uh-huh. they posted that almost being like you can't get mad at us most yeah, of, see, <laughs> most people can do it it's not a problem it's easy yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know, it is really easy to do and it's easy to get and people should definitely do that. And, you know, speaking of graphs, like I've seen a lot of kind of worrying graphs recently, especially graphs about the increase of infections in uh, school age children, uh, most of whom are not cleared to get the vaccine. Right. They have no recourse other than to uh, wear a mask or PPE or social distance. And so people's resistance to this is still baffling to me it's gone beyond just hiding the zombie bite and now it's like you know parading the zombie bite around mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like uh follow me i've been bitten we'll all be together very soon yeah and that that thing about the kids is an interesting point too because i was talking to a friend you know a few weeks ago and i was like i'm not sure what's going to happen with this festival because you know it's in it's in florida and things are bad there and all this stuff yeah. and he said like well you know at this point everyone you know it's your choice now to get covid basically and i'm like well i don't know there's like kids and you know there's like there's like people who can't get the vaccine yet you know so like i don't you know i don't want to say like we got the vaccine like let's just get out there but anyway i think you know things like the festival being like you know making you get vaccinated to come is like a good thing but yeah, yeah while acknowledging there's like people who can't now there's a lot of people who can though and they should yeah it might be your choice to get it but it's not your choice who you give it to uh and you don't know you know who gets it from you who they'll give it to and i mean i don't i can't believe we have to explain this to people and also you know there are a lot of things in our society that you can choose to do but we still restrict you from doing it because it's harmful and it's harmful to society as a whole so yeah i don't know just people just gotta do the right thing yeah, so you know, I've been I've been rocking out though in my private time, so hopefully it can bring that to the public. <laughs> well, we were talking about uh, we're talking about public gatherings and uh, meetings before, and I'm looking forward to attending the Mission Chicago Star Trek convention mm. this April if the world cooperates with our plans. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm pretty excited. I got some friends who are even going to come to town from that who are coming all the way from like Maine. So, oh really? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I got <That's>... some. <laughs> I got some buddies that me, 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 and my girlfriend will watch Star Trek with them, like over uh, Discord or whatever, and we'll watch the yeah. mo- mostly movies. We'll have like Trek movie night, and it was funny. Like I told them about that. And they're like, all right, we're coming. And they like got tickets and everything. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, I haven't even got that <laughs> stuff yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if everything goes according to plan, and hopefully it will, uh, we'll be representing, uh, you know, enterprising individuals and backtracking there at the show. And, you know, just all this COVID worry, I'm hoping that future listeners will look back at how foolish we were to be worried about the uh, safety and good nature of humanity. Um Hoping. Oh, yeah. And then for the in the in the alternate universe and the post-apocalyptic people, uh, we told you. But anyway, <laughs> I think I've said this before on one of our shows, but I, I'm not acting like I know anything anymore. Because <laughs> yeah, if you right. asked me about something in like uh, April of 2020 about what I thought COVID would be like in you know eight months, I'd yeah. probably sound stupid. So I'm I'm just yeah. like hoping for the best. 
it's hard to know what the future is going to be. But, you know, we do have examples of the past of how things like this have played out. And if you look at, um, I read a couple articles a while ago about uh, the 1918 pandemic, and it's like, this is pretty much exactly like what happened <laughs> yeah, you know, right. in terms of like the waves and in terms of like uh, anti-vax groups and then prominent people uh, from, on the anti-vax side going, ah, screw that. And then like, dong, RIP, so-and-so didn't get oh, the vaccine. Oh, it's happening so much. Yeah. So yeah, we're just basically repeating history. But that, that's supposedly uh, something that we need to do every once in a while. Right. Keep us humble. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to think that we've, we've got it uh, too good. Uh, on your podcast, Virtual Theater, you talk about video game films and the stories mm. that inspired them. And recently on the show, uh, I talked with a guest all about Star Trek video games. Um, oh, yeah. And there are, there are a lot of Star Trek video games, actually, but not really any good ones. Like, I think we both agreed that there's nothing that you would put like in the top 50 or maybe even top 100 of games. Why do you think it's so tough to make a Star Trek game? Uh, probably it's probably just due to the name. Like if you're thinking of, if you're like star Wars game, it's like, it's just so there's so much action to draw on, you know? And when yeah. you're, when you're playing, I mean, there are plenty of puzzle based and like more out of the box, thoughtful video games, but like, yeah, Usually when you play a game, you just want something that like, like at first you want it to feel good over it, like making you think good, if that makes sense. <laughs> okay. Like sure. I'm more concerned with like, how does it feel to jump or shoot a gun or something, you know? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that I think, and that's a lot of people's focus, you know? And so. Star Trek people sometimes jump and shoot, but that's, uh, that is a lot of, uh, that's of only, Star Trek. Yeah, that's only uh, a facet of it more so, yeah. you know, it's like, so that's, I think that's probably the biggest issue, but there are so many creative people that come up with all these super thoughtful games that where the mechanics are like some real brain busting stuff or like just really interesting stories or something like that. But I'm just, ge- I'm probably just guessing, you know, like. The, I mean, those are usually labors of love and stuff like that. And it's, I don't know, it's how are you going to lock them down to make your IP game? And and I'm yeah. sure they're like, we want to make something that we can mass market, you know, not a, not yeah. a niche little indie Star Trek game, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty easy to, to, since Star Wars is, you know, kind of action based, to just make any concept or, or gameplay idea Star Wars by adding force powers or a lightsaber or something like that. And so you can just take something that would be an action game and now it's a Star Wars game. I think like Battlefront is a great example of that. You know, a game that was very successful in a military theme and now it's like, well, we'll just put stormtroopers in there and you got a game. But like Star Trek is like, it's more esoteric because what are you trying to do? You want spaceships, you probably want phasers and, and things like that. But is it a story-based game or is it a puzzle game or is it is it just like action like uh, starship combat and so you have to sort of you know follow the prevailing trends as far as that goes i i mean i would play if they made like a star trek battlefront game i would definitely give it a shot that would be sweet though too yeah klingon soldiers versus uh you know federation uh security officers and then you can have the uh oh you get you collected all the tokens you can be kirk now and he comes in with a phaser rifle and shoots everybody right but i think a lot of people would argue that that's not necessarily like what star trek should be about that that does though get to like the core of your question it's because it's like they have made those types of star trek games but why why haven't those ever succeeded 
in being good, you know? Like there is yeah. there is uh that Star Trek um the one that's been, like the sequel to 2009. 2013. Yeah, yeah, the I, 2013 game. Right. Yeah, that one. And that's like an action-based cover shooter, but you watch I don't know, I watch gameplay of that and it looks it looks just like generic low effort garbage, you know, like Yeah, Gears why, of Trek. Gears of Trek. Yeah, why can't we get like I don't know, something that's like that that Fallen Order game or whatever, that Jedi game that people seem to like. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, where's our Star Trek Metroidvania game? <laughs> yeah, there's a game from the from uh, the year 2000 called DS9 The Fallen, which I wish that they would, I guess at this point, since it's a license, I think the, I think the fact that it's such a big license is the problem because it's, you know, Paramount or Viacom CBS is just going to get the lowest bidder to make their licensed game. And it's unlikely that, you know, Naughty Dog or some big studio would want to take on somebody else's IP. Uh, but it's also the problem that we're not going to get a good old games version of The Fallen you know, because nobody's going to want to restore this thing and make it run well on modern PCs. But what's cool about it is it, it's set in DS9 and you have a choice between playing, you know, different characters, Cisco, Kira, Worf. And it's a third-person action, but it also has the um, explore. I would compare it kind of to like Arkham Asylum a little bit in that, oh, that okay. there is, and you're using like the tricorder to do like detective mode type stuff, and uh, it's got kind of role-playing elements. And it's just like a really neat game, but you know, it was made 20 years ago, and like nobody's nobody's picked up that torch yet. In general, like they drop they drop the ball. They're gonna make it a lot of cool deep Deep Space Nine stuff. Why didn't we get that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. We we got a ton of, you know, in the 90s and like uh, early 2000s, we got a ton of um, Starship Combat games. Um, and oh, there is that like that like sort of board game. Or it's not board game, but it's like the ship battle tabletop yeah. game. That looks yeah. cool. There's a couple of those. And a mm-hmm. lot of those um, FMV games, you know, where like Q is like telling yeah. you to do something, which are basically just like choose your own adventure games. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I always thought, like, I guess that is close to how you could do an okay Trek game. Like, I always thought, like, Telltale could get the license and do one of their, you know, uh, Walking Dead style, you know, point yeah. games where you get some choices and sure, it's not, like, that open because they kind of have to, there's only so many outcomes they can account for. But, you know, tell yeah. tell, like, a Star Trek story that's, like, semi-interactive and you get like a maybe a cool stylized art style or something. I don't know. That could be okay. It wouldn't be like the best thing you could do, but it would be all right. Yeah. What do you think about the current state of video game cinema? Video games. Well, I got, what was the last, the last big thing was like Sonic. I think, I think yeah. we're getting to a point where, cause I, what I've, what I've kind of come to learn from watching my show is like, I actually like a lot of the stuff that, is considered bad, and I think it's like a lot of fun, you know. Sometimes goofy, and so, and sometimes definitely bad. But there's like plenty of interesting movies in there that are a lot of fun, and yeah. I and I think what we're gonna see is sort of how it, it reminds me sort of like the MCU, where there actually were plenty of solid comic book movies before the Avengers, but then then I think it became like. A lot of people are like, "Yeah, comic book movies are good now," and 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 I think that's what we're gonna get because I feel like Sonic 
wasn't actually it was like an okay solid like kids movie but it really wasn't like that amazing of a movie it was kind of it really had not much to do with sonic the hedgehog (laughs) the game or anything i really thought but somehow everyone was like that and like detective pikachu people were like all right they finally broke the curse of bad video game movies. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. Also, I like Pokemon, so my opinion can be yeah. trusted. <laughs> At this point, I think maybe I just watched so many. I'm like, I would, I would probably rather watch like, I don't know, Silent the Silent Hill movie or something over those. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, video games have, uh, you know, plots and, and characters and all the same things that, that movies do. But, um, usually it's, it's a question of trying to turn, uh, the narrative or turn the game into a narrative. So I guess in Pac-Man, the ghosts have feelings, you know, and the pretzels (laughs) do this or something, but something else that I think we're seeing now, uh, with people's, um, facility and, and familiarity with uh, video games uh, in society is game uh, movies about games uh, so like something like free guy, which oh, you right. kind of have to like get how like an MMO works, you know, or an action game works to get what free guy is kind of selling you. True. Or you could, um, you could like not get it and try to make that movie. Like what's, um, what was that? that uh was it serenity the matthew mcconaughey movie where it's like i don't think this person has seen a video game before but they made a video (laughs) game movie (laughs) right yeah they have an idea of like oh a video game right yeah yeah it's like a virtual world right that's what happens and the characters in it are like how do we get out of this virtual world yeah yeah yeah. There was a movie from a while ago. I think it was a Disney movie starring Dabney Coleman called Cloak and Dagger. And it's about this okay. kid who's like obsessed with video games, but also with role playing games. And he envisions his father is kind of absent, but he envisions his um, character, his his uh, his player character as a version of his father who's like this super spy. And so half the movie is like these, you know, these goofy scenarios, like these spy scenarios that he imagines this character in. But then he himself gets embroiled in a real life spy drama in his real life. And so at like critical moments, like he's imagining what his father character would do you know and there's any rolls the dice and and that sort of thing and i thought that that was really that that movie kind of like just sort of passed and i don't think anybody really remembers it but i thought it was an interesting blend of how would you take something like a tabletop role-playing game and uh sort of dramatize you know what you're what you're doing or what happens like sometimes like he rolls bad and the character's gonna die but he's like no no that's not where i'm not gonna take that role we're gonna do something else and so like the movie kind oh. of rewinds. yeah <laughs> oh interesting yeah i've never heard of that that sounds interesting though yeah i love dabney coleman movies um <laughs> as listeners may or may not know you and i co-host another star trek podcast called backtracking where we examine the real world inspirations behind classic trek episodes and those inspirations could be actual historical events uh literature and short stories even television and film like in the case of our episode today and we also take trek episodes and compare them to pieces of media that share an inspiration or that explore similar themes and we'll talk in a minute about profit and loss and its own inspiration. But first, I want to ask, how surprised are you now, over two years into the life of the show, that we're still finding material to talk about in the podcast? Um, I, I'm not surprised, actually, only because yeah. like one of the things that first drew me to Star Trek was that it was like, 
oh, this week we're doing like a Wild West episode. And this week we're like doing it's like a Twilight Zone. There's a lot of Twilight Zones or this week it's a battle episode. And so I've always like one of the things one of like the top three things that I associate with something I love about Star Trek is kind of its versatility and like being being this one universe, but gives you like so many genres within. So, yeah, like it it should be surprising, but I, I'm not because I, I love that's something I love about Trek. Yeah, it's it's funny that like for Trek, which is an ongoing franchise with now over 800 episodes, they're always going to need content like it. I, it's possible, I suppose, but it would be very tough to tell 800 stories uh, on Kirk's Enterprise. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I haven't counted oh, yeah. the extended universe books. Maybe it's already been done, but you have to repeat yourself at some point. But it is fascinating that Trek, you know, not only um, presents interesting um, situations and characters and worlds, but also serves as a backdrop for <laughs> so many things that you can drop other um, plots and things into as as we've seen, as we've explored movies and novels and TV shows that have been transplanted into Trek. And that's also why, too, we, at the same time, we also have hit points where, oh, I'm pretty sure, like, they've done this sort of plot, like, two or three other times. Oh, Trek repeats itself. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. There are only so many ideas, I guess, out there at, at the same time. But, yeah, I mean, and even without... with what we're talking about today, we, you know, we already covered it. So, yeah, yeah, we did. Um it's without actually, you know, going deep into our backlog and examining things, you know, I would say that often, um, I don't know if it's just a case of Trek getting it right the first time, but like when Trek revisits a plot, it often isn't as good as the first time. And maybe it's because I, they just squeezed all the juice out of it the first time. I think sometimes it's because Trek is aware that it's already visited this yes. idea or this theme and needs to do something new and did get it right the first time. And so they're kind of stuck saying, well, should we have it go wrong this time? Or is there some other aspect of this theme uh, or, or a result that we can examine? And it gets, it finds itself kind of spinning its wheels. I totally get that sometimes. Like we, um, that thought crossed my head recently when we, we watched on our show, um, the, uh, the thaw in Voyager and Mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly the same, but it sort of, the conflict in that that they had with the clown sort of reminded me of Moriarty in TNG. And I was thinking like, you know, an, a classic Star Trek ending to this would be like they figure out a weird way to like trap the clown guy and like let him keep living his life so they don't kill a guy. Uh, yeah. and I, I don't know if this is what they thought, but then it's like kind of a twist in the end where it's like, no, they just kill him screw that guy <laughs> yeah which would be like down, lenny <laughs> you'll which, never see squiggy again <laughs> originally like the cool thing about tng is that it's like like they found a way to subvert like just defeating the enemy you know but yeah. then now it's like a resubversion because it's like you would expect this from star trek so like we twisted it back you know yeah no screw that guy <laughs> yeah he's dead <laughs> so that i don't know if that's what they thought but it does feel like no we can't do that again you know yeah. Well, it's uh, we're almost 60 episodes into the show, uh, and it was created on something of a whim, but uh, but I knew yeah. it was a solid idea, and uh, I think it's it's held up. And so I was just looking back at our catalog and some of the, what I think are some of the best episodes that we did and some of the most um, 
poignant comparisons that we made. Um, I was surprised. Uh, again, another pitch that was kind of a whim, but we were like, isn't Flatliners, the movie Flatliners, a lot like the Voyager episode, The Barge of the Dead? And the answer was, uh, yeah, it yeah. kind of was. <laughs> yeah, that was sweet, too. <laughs> I like that's that goes back to what I was saying about Star Trek, where like sometimes it's just like, let's just do a Flatliners, you know, let's do a yeah. Die Hard. You know, yeah. it, it is our like big thinky you know, sci-fi show, but sometimes we just do like this, you know, kick-ass, you know, kind of action movie. Like, yeah, you can throw that in. Yeah, why not? Kill me so I can deal with my issues with my parent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, that works in Star Trek, sure. Yeah. Uh, something else that we talked about recently because of the release of Wonder Woman 1984 was uh, we took the opportunity to compare it to DS9's Rivals, which I, oh. I don't think they Wonder Woman 1984 doesn't uh, come spring specifically from rivals, but both of them deal with a very, very old idea, which is the idea of the monkey's paw or uh, being careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah, that one that one. That's one of those ones where it's like you throw it out and it's like, this is kind of goofy, but let's do it. And it it's like, OK, the connections are tenuous at best, but you kind of get to explore a theme anyway, which is always mm-hmm. something that's kind of fun is when, I don't know. I like, I like variety again with the types of stuff in star Trek. So um, yeah. even in my own time, when I'm preparing for this, I like, all right, cool. I get to watch like, well, not that I was, I wasn't that excited about watching wonder woman, but it, it was exciting <laughs> to watch for a star Trek podcast. Just this like totally, you know, kind of out there, not important, or talked about episode, you know? Yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, doing 50 first dates in twilight. <laughs> yeah. That another, from Enterprise. well, no, that was perfect. Actually. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. If only, uh, if only the twilight planet, uh, city alpha five had been more like Hawaii. Like if there was a uh, walruses to hang out, like with, a nice then... vacation for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. If only mm-hmm. Rob Schneider was there, the parallels would be real specific. Yeah. How come Rob Schneider never did a star Trek? He would be a perfect weird alien guy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, they're making like almost they're making three of these shows basically in the 90s, right? Like where was Rob Schneider at that time? <laughs> I Doing don't know. Movies. They got Michael McKeon. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't a TV guy at that point. Yeah. Uh, and then the, some of the uh, inspirations are more explicit, like the time that we talked about the TOS episode Arena and its actual inspiration, which was the short story Arena by Frederick Brown, who also wrote the oh, episode. Oh, yeah. That, that one just rocked. That was cool. <laughs> yeah. It's an example of a classic, you know, 50s or I can't remember the exact date, but 40s, 50s pulp sci-fi story um, of the of the like that inspired many of the early TOS episodes. Yeah, we've done, we've done a cool, uh, like a few sci-fi stories like from that era. Like we did those Asimov ones, right? And we did the, the Flat Cats. And I always kind of like <laughs> yeah. visiting... That era, which is, I guess, if it's a little bit before uh, the Trek time, but it, f- it feels like it's kind of like the heritage almost of Star Trek because it's like just, you know, that era almost or like like what yeah. preceded it, you know, or like when we watched uh, was it Forbidden Planet or whatever. It's like, yeah, this is just like this is just like a step to Star Trek. So it's kind of cool to see like the cultural beginnings almost of that sort of speculative sci-fi thing people talk about the 
about the positivity of Trek, especially early Trek. And it's a positive, you know, it was really Roddenberry that made it a positivity of utopia, um, a future that we could get excited about because, you know, racial divisions were gone and economic problems were a thing of the past. And if you read those old uh, 40s and 50s pulp stories, there's no suggestion, everybody's white, <laughs> there's no suggestion that like racial integration is a thing and everybody gets a paycheck. It's not like they're free right. from like econom- yeah. economic problems, but there is that um, that sort of classic um, optimism about the future. It's like, hey, we're in space. How bad could it be? You know, man <laughs> will achieve these heights. Man will develop these these technologies and we'll be out there. And sure, we'll run into a blobby alien and maybe we have to kill them. But, uh, you know, things are going pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That I think that's what sets... You, you can take something like Forbidden Planet and then you mix in some of the, like, utopia stuff into it and it gives you like similar but different kind of characters and settings but yeah it's like that's what sets it apart and makes it a little bit more i don't know fun i guess and unique from those things yeah and even in like forbidden planet there's you know the 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 warning of of delving too greedily and too deep you know the idea that Mm -hmm. science and technology is cool but maybe not too much science and technology like a like a black mirror type message where uh, they get in trouble because they're dealing with uh, with powers they can't possibly understand. And that isn't often a theme in Trek. You know, knowledge is almost always good in Trek. Very rarely do they run into, like, a technology that's like, oh, this is too much technology. You know, we can't have this. Uh, yeah, I, I can think of a few where it's like, oh, the technology became their, like, god, and they... Oh, sure. You know, or like, oh, they forgot how to, like, do anything. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But yeah. never, but like... But- It'll drive never, you mad. <laughs> yeah, there's never a Wally situation where it's like, "Hey, go out and plant some tomatoes." Why are you just drinking a Slurpee all day? You know, it's a, the the luxury of Trek is always seen as positive, and our characters can read a book and get a, a chamomile tea or whatever, whatever they want. But yet they still get up and do things, and the the convenience never never corrupts them. I wonder if there's like maybe that just goes well. Star Trek at this point is become whatever you want it to be you could kind of tell whatever but i i wonder if there's room for like a story like that in in maybe even if it's not a serious thing i guess in discovery they had that weird like uh cloud thing or whatever i forgot what the sphere was it right wasn't that some like ai and i guess they are exploring like ai gone too far yeah yeah that's a great that's a great point yeah, in, in two of the new series, they're like, well, this clearly is is too much. And it's weird that they, not weird, it's very interesting that they picked AI as the thing that we have to watch out for, um, partially because I think that has been the central premise of a couple uh shows and movies that took place in the interim between, you know, Enterprise and uh, Discovery, but also because Trek has never really addressed AI all that much. You know, we, uh-huh. we've got data and we've got all the robots that Kirk talks to death. But in their advanced universe, why is there no AI? Why are there no um, real um, sentient programs? And when there are somebody like Data or the Doctor, they're very isolated cases. It's something I guess I wish uh, I would see maybe a more like I feel like there could be more interesting take on it. Because like um, like like a show like Deep Space Nine or something kind of showed like that we can have like all this technology it can be positive but it's really about like 
who wields it and how that could could be dangerous, you know, yeah. and not yeah. not the tech in itself. And maybe that was kind of the point of Picard, too, because it's not like yeah. every uh, android is bad or anything. But it, it, it did kind of, I feel like, I mean, maybe that's kind of the point, but it kind of played into like, the ooh, robots are kind of scary, huh? Yeah. And making explicit, too, the fact that once you have all that technology and advantage, like what you do with it and how you treat other races that don't have it is is what defines you. Um, you know, we all we always forget that the Klingon Empire is called the Klingon Empire, which would suggest that they lord over yeah. other species that they have conquered. And by the time they get to uh, TNG and the uh, the Berman years, you know, the, the scope of Trek has expanded to the point where we could explore that. But the Klingons are kind of the good guys now. And so we can't really do that. And that's why we get the Cardassians. And we see how a race, an advanced race like the Cardassians has victimized and exploited a race like the Bajorans who are not at their level. Yeah. And, and it's something that I've thought about recently, actually, is how like, so they have like in like TNG, Deep Space Nine era or whatever, they have all this technology that wasn't as prevalent or maybe didn't exist when they made the show. But now it's pretty widespread, like stuff like just like the communicators and like being able to tell where anyone is and, you know, yeah. like video and tablets and all this stuff, stuff that like now is like, you know, there's a lot of security issues and surveillance issues yeah. that people are nervous about. But like they they're already showing us a world where they have all that, but it's not a big deal. And no one seems no one yeah. seems to be like being monitored or whatever. Um, yeah. So they're that to me now says now that we do have it, that if, if it's still a future from now, which maybe it isn't, but you know, in this, if they're imagining it as such, like there had to be a time where we get from here to then and go like, okay, we have to like actually put limits on how we use this technology, you know, like we can tell you where you are on the ship, but like you can't just like, you know, listen in on their communicator or, you know, their their pad or their computer or whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, maybe they'll uh, they'll do that uh, in, in season four of Discovery. Uh, or like a, be a section a Cam- 31 probably does that stuff. Yeah, there'll be a Cambridge Analytica type, right, uh, yeah. type scandal. Where everybody's, uh, they've got everybody's information and people don't like it. That would be great if there was like a track. We gave you your little hollow badges <laughs> and you, you, you clicked through the agreement. You signed it. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, uh, if you like uh, talk like this, this is uh, all Backtracking is. So check out Backtracking at, at Backtracking.com. If you want more of that, uh, it should be apparent to anybody, I think, who watches today's episode, Profit and Loss, that is based, at least in structure, on the 1942 film Casablanca. And I'll just say, you know, it's like 80 years old at this point. It's one of the most famous movies of all time. But if you haven't seen Casablanca, do that. Just stop this. (laughs) Go watch it. Oh, yeah. Uh, And the episode, (laughs) DS9 episode, I guess, and then come back. And the parallels in the episode are, I think, clear. But the connection... In the original script was even more explicit. In fact, the original script for the episode was titled, Here's Looking at You. But of course, that was changed because who needs a Warner Brothers lawyer breathing down their neck? Oh, what if what if they called it Ears Looking at You? See, that if they had had the guts to do that. That, that would have been so good. I feel like the Warner Brothers lawyer would just be like, <laughs> you're all right. You just leave. <laughs> I've come, Casablanca, it, I know it's not old enough, but... You like it should be public domain. <laughs> I feel well, like. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the way that uh, 
that that copyright, you know, and, and IP protection in general has gone, especially in the cinematic sphere. Like, you know, it'll never be no, uh, yeah. in the public domain. But uh, that's a conversation perhaps for a different show. <laughs> yeah. uh, on this show, we're talking about the DS9 episode Profit and Loss. It's the 18th episode of the second season of DS9. It first aired on March 20th, 1994. It was written by Flip Kobler and Cindy Marcus. And Kobler and Marcus are a husband and wife writing team. This is their only Trek credit, but they would go on to write several seasons sequels to Disney animated films like The Lion King 2, Simba's Pride, Pocahontas 2, Journey to a New World, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, The Secret of the Bell. They also were reportedly working on an animated Pirates of the Caribbean feature until they came up with the idea for the live action thing, and so that was scrapped. Oh, Uh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. The pair also founded the Showdown Stage Company at the Hub Theater in North Hollywood, where they produced teen-themed plays based on classic works of literature. So if you're the... They didn't do Aladdin 2. They can't be blamed for that. But if you're the kind of person who just hackles go up every time you see Lion King 2 or, or something <laughs> like that, or uh, Lilo and Stitch 2 or whatever, uh, they were uh, at the forefront of that. I had some of those and the, the oh, sure. big foam squishy cases. That was yeah. Those were good. Yeah. The episode was directed by Robert Weimer, who we've talked about on the show previously. Weimer directed eight episodes of TNG before Profit and Loss, and he passed away in 2014. There is no stardate for this episode, not uncommon for a DS9 episode. And your assignment, Gooey, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Profit and Loss. Oh, I forgot about this aspect. Um, Well, first I'll do a short one, which is Quark does a Casablanca. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but uh, okay, Quark uh, reunites with a former love who is a Cardassian rebellion leader person, um, and that that's probably good enough. And and, and conflicts ensue. <laughs> And conflicts ensue, yeah. <laughs> as they must. Conflict with the human heart. Here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about the episode. Uh, we learn a lot about Garrick in this episode compared to what we knew before. Uh, we learn that he's a Cardassian exile, and he confesses to Bashir, although facetiously, that he is an outcast spy. And he had only appeared in two episodes before this. This is the third episode total that we get of, of Garrick. During the love scene between Cork and Natima, the actor's makeup had to be touched up after each take because Armin Shiverman's orange makeup and the guest star's gray makeup would end up mixing together. So oh, they're, wow. they're trading, <laughs> trading makeup in that scene. This episode was being filmed when the 1994 Northridge earthquake, which was a 6.7 on the Richter scale, hit Los Angeles. The quake happened happened at 4.31 a.m. when many of the alien actors were having their makeup applied. And some of the actors, including Armin Shimmerman and Ed Wiley, who plays Turan, couldn't get through to their families on the phone. So they got in their cars to drive home and they had to do it in full makeup. Oh and I've heard, I've heard before Armin Shimmerman tell a story about how he was driving home in his makeup and he was stopped at an intersection at a, at a red light getting ready to turn left. And the motorist across the intersection saw him in his car with his Ferengi ears and his teeth. When the light turned green, they were like, no, that's that's OK. Go ahead. You go. <laughs> Just let him go. <laughs> I would honestly that would I would be scared. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty afraid <laughs> of monsters. 
it's 5 a.m. You know, it's dark out. And then, uh, yeah, the headlights reveal a monster in the car. After, <laughs> no less, everybody has been shaken literally by, by this earthquake. It's like, where are these monsters coming from? Oh, I'd be like, yeah, I guess it's especially now. I'd be like, yeah, it's the end of the world. That's After 10,000 years, I'm free. Yeah. <laughs> After like, two... I, don't, I don't have to go to work today is what I would think. Right. Yeah. I just get a snap of this and just show that to my boss. <laughs> After a two-day inspection of the studio, filming resumed on January 19th. Uh, as far as the episode itself goes, series writer and producer Ira Stephen Bear is not a fan of this episode. He's said in the past that he feels that Quark comes off as too heroic in the episode. And the show already had too many heroes. And he wanted more offbeat interesting characters uh he Mm. said specifically quote you don't take woody allen and make him into a bogart and series creator and producer michael pillar also said that this was a quote disappointing episode in the season oh really i i I mean i don't agree that it's not good because i i feel like it's really well put together and everything and every every character has such a good you know thrust through the story i guess you could say yeah. and and maybe it is because um they took you know kind of a pre-existing idea and molded it into this but i mean i just feel like you i was watching this and i'm like yeah they they know how to put like it, it seems that they really know what they're doing and like it really feels like yeah we know how to move these characters around uh through this story like i don't know it just felt like they really knew what they were doing yeah, it's weird because, you know, we're we're talking or we have been talking and we'll continue to talk about how Trek can um, push the boundaries of characterization and can adapt uh, other ideas. And especially on DS9, let its characters grow beyond the whole, you know, we are Starfleet um, kind of mold. And here you've got two of the architects of not only this series, but a lot of 90s Trek sort of reacting negatively against seeing characters outside of the uh, the archetypes or stereotypes that they had originally cast them in, um, seeing Cork be something of a romantic hero or lead, um, which is funny because uh, you and I and uh, Hio Mary talked about necessary evil on Enterprising Individuals oh, right. previously, and Cork is a romantic lead in that one. Like you've got a situation where there's this woman from his past and they're kind of flirtatious, and it's not the thrust of the episode, but we're already seeing that Quark could be this romantic figure. And here we uh, spotlight <laughs> that in this episode, and they're like, no, no, that doesn't work. He's just a goofy guy that runs the bar. No, it's not true. because the, And then they also give him, you know, the house of Quark and, like, the yeah. follow-up yeah. episode to that. Like, yeah. he's he is totally a romantic a guy who has romances, which I don't see why that, that makes perfect sense, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he... he He's a social <laughs> butterfly. He runs a bar, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Let Quark have a, go on a date or two. Come on. I do think it is interesting to think, like, does it make him less bad? Because I feel like early on, they have some episodes where he does, he causes some, like, awful things to happen. It's like, and at the end of the episode, even even if they try to soften it, it's like, oh, he feels kind of irredeemable. But then... Later in the series, it happens kind of to every character because you just grow to like all the characters almost. But like, you know, by the end with him and like Odo or whatever, and they they become. I feel like they always grow closer. I feel like, and I'm I'm kind of in the middle of a rewatch, and I'm in like season five, and there was yeah. some, something that happened in one episode, but between them, where I'm like, well, now Cork can never like be bad. <laughs> you know, he's just too right. lovable. You know, yeah. so 
maybe yeah. they have gotten to that point, but it goes back and forth. So it's like sentiment creep or, or, or something like that, where they've just been too through too much at this point. Like yeah. how many times can, and I'm not saying that DS9 did it too many times or, or failed at all, but like how many times can Cork and Odo see eye to eye before Odo just stops <laughs> being such a prick to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it made me think like, it is kind of interesting in some of the earlier stuff where he just does some awful things in it. And he's it pretty is, bad early on. Yeah. And it's kind of cool. Cause it's like, I kind of like that. There is like, someone so so like evil or like awful or slimy that like is forced they're forced to like interact with on a star trek show you know yeah and yeah and deal with them yeah yeah Let's talk about the guest stars in the episode. Mary Crosby appears as Natima Lang. Crosby is the daughter of Bing Crosby and his second wife Catherine Crosby. That makes her Denise Crosby's aunt. And she began acting at the age of four, and she would go on to many appearances in TV series in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. She also played the female lead of Ice Pirates, Princess Karina. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh-huh. Ice Pirates, go check it out. And she is probably most famous for the role of Kristen Shepard on Dallas, which she played for two seasons. Oh. She shot JR. Oh, really? I actually so never... You know the answer. I never knew. I was yeah. just like, that's a big question. Uh, yeah. Maybe one day I'll know. Tasha Yar's aunt shot Jr. Whoa. That's how you know. <laughs> Michael Riley Burke plays Hogue in the episode. Burke had appeared previously on TNG as the Borg Goval in Descent Part 2, and he would go on to play Koss to Paul's fiance in three episodes of Enterprise. Burke has had a prolific career in television since his debut on TNG, having amassed over 100 credits, including playing the title role in the 2002 film Ted Bundy. Heidi Swedberg appears as Recklin. Swedberg has had a similarly prolific career in movies and television, appearing in films such as In Country, Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, and Galaxy Quest. But she is definitely known best for the role of Susan Ross, the fiancé of George Costanza, which she played for <laughs> four years on Seinfeld. Nice. Okay. Cool. And it's like, it's like Quark, you know? George, George gets women. Cork gets women. You don't think of George <laughs> as being a guy, but he has a fiance for four years. Also, he dates a ton of women on the show. And uh, Cork, Cork could be in the same situation. Yeah, let's let the weird little bald guys get some. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's our quote for this episode. Uh, Edward Wiley appears as Turan. Wiley has appeared previously in Trek as the Klingon governor Vach in the fourth season episode <laughs> of TNG, The Mind's Eye. Wiley made his screen acting debut in the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. He's also appeared in the films Highlander, Sniper, and SFW before retiring from acting in 1996. Oh. It's always interesting to see, like, when I go through people's uh, IMDb's, you know, you look at a um, an actor like Rod Steiger, for instance, who's been in, like, almost 200 films Everybody has worked with this guy. He's a Hollywood legend. And then you look at like so-and-so who's been on like a bunch of TV shows and they've got like 250 credits, you know, because it's just like you get to a a position and you see it a lot with Star Trek guest stars where they're just on call, like either the studio, you know, yeah, or their agent has got them out there. And so they're just every week they're showing up on something and it's got to be a pretty good living for somebody you're never going to be the tom cruise but you're um you know you're, you're getting a lot of money just doing I, other stuff i love some of these people too not even like the big name ones i love some of these people because i'll be watching like voyager or enterprise or something and they're yeah. on there and i'm like i don't know who this is but i know 
they're from I've seen them in TNG or something. Yeah. And yeah. and you know, even if I don't bother to look it up, it it's like this feels more like Star Trek because they're here. <laughs> yeah. There's something like comforting about seeing a face you kind of remember from Star Trek in another Star Trek. Well, let's talk about the episode itself. And something that we discuss often on backtracking is the way in which an idea or a plot evolves when you bring it into Trek. And although I think something like Casablanca is tailor-made, Garrick pun intended, to be in the world of DS9, it's interesting how the individual players in the story all find new motivations and positions in comparison to Casablanca. And as I watch the film and then watch the episode, you have to sit there and go, well, okay, all right, who's the, who's the Rick here? Who's the, <laughs> who's the Louie? You know, who's, you know, who's the Ilsa? Um, you have to kind of like look at it that way. And I think the characters map pretty well on the principles from Casablanca, but their motivations are all tailor-made to the characters that we know. And it actually very interestingly like changes the reason why um, the characters are kind of doing what they, what they do. Uh, oh yeah, you have to. to. The movie. Yeah, you definitely have to because you can't have Quark have the same backstory as Rick. But maybe you. Throw Although in... they try, because they talk about how, and of course Quark is all about profit. But they talk about how he sold food to like the Bajoran refugee, refugees, which I'm sure he wasn't supposed to do uh, during the occupation. And so, you know, it, that I don't think that necessarily betrays like altruism on his part. But in the film Casablanca. You know, Rick always tries to um, to color his uh, revolutionary activities as being mercenary. People always bring up that, like, oh, you ran guns to Ethiopia yeah. and you fought, you know, against Franco in Spain or whatever. And he's always like, well, you know, it, it doesn't pay quite as well, but it was all about the money. Yeah, I feel like in that, maybe it's just my, my takeaway from it, but it, it feels like, okay, he's... He's fronting there, obviously, and then yeah. they show the flashbacks, and it's like, yeah, he's like a a romantic guy, and he has feelings, you know. Whereas yeah. like Quark, maybe it's just like you've seen enough of him, but it's like it's very easy for me to be like, oh yeah, he did that because he would make money, you know. Yeah, yeah, like ultimately, like Rick is. I, I think both Rick and Quark, and both Casablanca and this episode, all have the same theme, which is that you just you have to be what you are and you won't be happy if you're not. And in Casablanca, mm-hmm. Rick is trying to, he's playing the role of a cynic and a drunkard because he has been disappointed and frustrated by, you know, what happened with his relationship with Ilsa and, you know, the fall of France and the Nazis moving over Europe. And so he's trying to be this like miserable uh, bar owner and he, he can't be that ultimately. And that, you know, it, he does what he does at the end of the movie because of his, um, his innate heroism, whereas Quark, <laughs> Quark is, you know, Quark is our hero of, on, on the show, but he is no hero himself. And he is in love with this woman, certainly. But the relationship breaks up originally because he was being Quark, <laughs> because right. like he because he was like skimming off the top or, or whatever. Natima says, like, you know, you were like doing Ferengi stuff and you were like, uh, you know, trying to make money off of this situation. And you know, by the end, even as he's like loading her and her students onto the ship, like he's still like, well, you know, you could just stay here. I mean, like they're the right. important ones, right? All the like, way I up until you. the end. 
where yeah, yeah I, Rick is stay with me. <laughs> Rick is like, I am ready to fight the Nazis now. Yeah, and Cork, <laughs> yeah, and Cork's like, hey, come run the bar with me. It's good, good times. Yeah, like if if I I would met and this is just totally like a what if, but you know if if Cork was in a situation where he would lose his whole you know life like the bar or anything like would he do the same thing yeah yeah that's that's what where i think the difference is i feel like he still has that sort of like safety net (laughs) almost whereas i I don't think rick can stay in casablanca yeah i think that they they kind of he kind of floats the idea of you know leaving the bar to rom and, and running off with her but you have to wonder how committed he would really be to that yeah i think that you know, for him making profit, you know, getting money, you know, running biz is, is his truest self. Even then too, he doesn't have to go like fight the, a war, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's the stakes are a lot, a lot lower for him. Yeah. Uh, I I do like that, you know, Rick's catchphrase that he sticks his neck out for nobody and they really should have just like the uh, ears <laughs> looking at you. He should have, you know, I stick my ears out for nobody that they could. Yeah. That yeah. He should have said that. He should have said ears looking at you like that would have been fine. Probably <laughs> you could get away with that. Come on. Yeah. I do like Rick has so many catchphrases. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just the, the, one of the <laughs> things that I love and everybody loves about Casablanca is that like that, that script is so popping, like it never slows down. It reminds me yeah, just oh my for God. a modern viewer. It reminds me, it's not a perfect one-to-one, but of watching like 30 rock, you know, like 30 rock, their joke ratio is like the number's so low, like in every five seconds, they're giving you something to react to some joke and, and, uh, and something to laugh at. And like Casablanca is every, every other line is just like, uh, just it's goes up fun, on the AFI yeah. list. Yeah, it's just a classic. Yeah, and and that's uh, that's something that's interesting because I think this I don't think this is totally unique of that time, but I feel like so many movies like pre nineteen seventy five get like it, from more of a average perspective are like, oh, that's like an old movie. Like it's probably slow and boring, which is not true of a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah, that are from that time, yeah. but this is like the perfect example of like. I just like, just watch this movie, you know, like just watch it and tell, yeah. tell me this is boring. You know, it's, it's never, it's always fun or interesting or something, you know? Yeah. It was the French new wave that ruined everything. <laughs> Cause now you can have like two people driving around in a car for 15 minutes and nobody says anything. Yeah. And there's a picture of a cat or something, <laughs> but no, back then it's like all the dialogue had to be going all the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's unfair. And I don't even agree that the boring movies are boring, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Quark is, as we said, a little bit different than Rick. Um, you know, unlike feeling resentment over um, their separation, his separation from his love, um, he runs right out to meet her like the second that he sees her. Like that's the, right. the sort of difference <laughs> is that he is he's 100% ready to to renew this connection. And of course, the complication will be the, the fact that she's, you know, committed to her her work and to her students uh, like in the film. But yeah, he's just going the whole, he doesn't have to be convinced to like be with her again. He's ready to do it. Right. Well, cause I, I'm guessing from his perspective, it's like, he's probably ended a lot of relationships or friendships by just being himself <laughs> and <laughs> being slimy, you know? So like, yeah. it, you know, he's probably like, yeah, I understand that. Like I, I, but I hope this person will come back to me anyway. 
Yeah, just yeah, take me for me, baby. I gotta, I gotta hustle. That actually makes um, and it makes her a little bit. I don't want to say more interesting than a movie, but uh, it's just like she she has a different role where she's like she's actually part of the revolutionary or whatever. Like she's kind of maybe not the leader or whatever, but she has more of a stake in it. Whereas like at the end of Casablanca, the big speech is like, you've got to go and like support this guy. <laughs> you know, yeah. He loves you. you yeah. Know, she's more of kind of a role. Like, yeah, she's it's, it's a more like what you kind of expect from a, a, a female character from the time. It's still great, but it's just see, it's, it's interesting because I had a big, not argument, but a, uh, a big monologue that I gave to uh, my girlfriend the other day when we were watching this film. And it's the idea that up until like the fifth act and at Casablanca has a five act structure and it makes sense because it's based on a play. Um, but up until the fifth act, I think that she, as much as she can be for a movie from the late thirties, early forties is a, a, a pillar of the action of that's going on. She is a part of that triangle. You know, she, her choices are as important as anybody else's. Um, it's just in the fifth act it to give it a Hollywood ending, you know, where Rick is going to do something noble and he's going to make a selfless choice and put her on that plane. Her concerns are, are, are left out. You know, I think both Casablanca and Profit and Loss let their female leads down um, in that respect. And I think the problem is it's the ambiguity of their feelings. You know, it's an important part of an important aspect of the character of Elsa. And I think by extension, Natima, that her her power in the story is who she's giving her affections to. Um, which is understandable for a 1940s Casablanca. It's a little yeah, more yeah. regressive. It's a little regressive for a 90s TV show. Uh, but what she really thinks about the protagonist uh, or her actual husband, if she has one in the story, is is hard to quantify. And I think it's because she's both torn between two worlds or two men, but also because she's intentionally obfuscating her real feelings to achieve her goal, you know, specifically to get to safety. There's that there's – a, there's a series of scenes at Casablanca where she – um, has to kind of feel out Rick. And it it's pretty clear, like, early on that she, she, she first, in the first act, she sees him and it's like, oh, it's nostalgic, remember those good times, and he's a total dick to her. And after that, she's like, all right, forget this guy. But later on, when she learns about, you know, the papers and, and the utility he has, then it becomes like, okay, I need to talk to you. She goes to see him, you know, at night in the bar, and she, you know, at first tries to cajole him and then pleads with him, then eventually just pulls a gun on him. And the end of that sequence is her being like, oh, I've always loved you. I don't know what to think. You think for both of us. And I can't, with my modern eyes, I can't help but read that as it's an act. I mean, she I think she does have feelings for him. They had this like amazing whirlwind romance, but she's going to do whatever she has to to save her husband, who she, uh, who she loves. Yeah. And I think that, unfortunately, I don't think that Natima is characterize that deeply and honestly i'm not sure that mary crosby is necessarily up to the the acting challenge but we get those beats in the ds9 episode as well but they're not fleshed out enough to really get how, what natima's thinking we know that this cause is super important to her uh, and we know that she cares about war, uh cork too but like she does shoot him and then, i was like, about right to after... say she does pull the trigger <laughs> yeah she pulls the trigger no it's non-lethal but like yeah she pulls the trigger and then immediately after is like oh i feel bad oh yes cork i remember all those great times well but it's i feel like it's a similar thing where she doesn't really 
does she mean it or not? And because the episode has to end with two characters we like walking away with a beautiful friendship, we don't ever really explore okay, it. Yeah. Because the, the story just goes, well, I guess that's not that important. And it's like, no, I want to know if Elsa really loved him or not. <laughs> you know, I want to know if Natira really ever thought about abandoning her cause. She does say when she's leaving right in Casablanca, like, that's not true. Like, I did feel those things for you, right? Like, yeah. she's like, yeah. It, and they also talk about, they, they talk about how, um, about, you know, they will always have Paris. Um, but we had lost that until uh, last night. When, you know, we, you told me the truth about Victor and we, and we talked about all that stuff and we have that back yeah. now, but it puts all of those words in Bogey's mouth <laughs> because uh-huh. it could have been a conversation between two equals, but instead I, yeah. he has to, he has to have this big long speech that everybody remembers, even though there's much better lines in Casablanca. And I think that it's, <laughs> I think it's too bad. And I also think that a modern reading of it would also uh, I've thought about this a lot. A modern reading of yeah. it would also <laughs> would also be um, honest about how this whole problem was caused by Rick. Like he was hurt by a woman, and so now he's acting like a prick and being a miserable guy running this bar. Yeah. And if he had just given them the papers right away, this would be over. And it takes mm. the entire action of the movie for him to finally get over himself and see himself as a hero. And then once he does see himself as a hero, he has to go. I'm going to give the heroic speech. Let me tell you about this hill of beans in this crazy world. And she's like, I was a war widow who found out that my husband was actually still alive. And we've been running all over Europe trying to escape the Nazis. And you're going to tell me about like the hill of beans. Like he's just totally mansplaining all of World War II to her. <laughs> well, I liked, so uh, in the scene where they both, where the gun is pulled in both of them, especially in Casablanca, what I like about it is, I feel like they both, especially Rick, obviously, he's this whole time being this prick. And it's like, why won't you help them? Like, even, you know, even if you have this, it's obviously the right thing to do. Yeah. And and it's you've shown, you know, that it's not really that big of a problem for you to help people like that. Yeah, but yeah. um, and then. Yeah, because he, yeah, he helps the, the young uh, Czechoslovakian couple. Uh, and Yes, exactly. And then she's also got like. Also, if she could maybe have told him, like, what happened, like, maybe that would make things a little bit easier. But I feel like that scene where they confront each other, like, and it goes to those extremes. What I like about it is it takes, like, this very extreme moment, this, like, totally extreme moment for them to kind of then, like, erode away their, like, the thing, like, the thing holding them back, you know. And then they finally open up to each other, but it's, like. You know, it's much too late, obviously, but yeah. that's that's what I like about it is that it's kind of this explosion where they can find and then they can finally like in the rubble of that sort of put things back together. So I do yeah. like that. I do like that. And um, they are and they are, you know, they are eating their own hearts out there in conflict with themselves. You know, he's he's completely unable to just get over this betrayal uh, and also, you know, just being feeling uh, like the war is a losing effort and, and having lost so many times. And she feels, she feels guilty and conflicted because she, you know, thought that her husband was dead and she fell in love with this man. And then she learned that her husband was alive and she had to leave this guy and she never felt like she could tell him. And so she sees like what a wreck he's become. And she probably feels like responsible in some way for it. And so how does she make that right? She can't because they've got to get these stupid papers and they've got to get out of here because they're going to get killed by the Nazis, you know? And so everybody is just all just tearing themselves apart inside. 
And you don't have Quark doesn't <laughs> just never touch by that. He doesn't really care. He just wants to be <laughs> date just this lady again. Yeah. Yeah. He does yeah, he doesn't really ever have to make that choice. Uh you've got because cause you've got Garrick kind of being the the Rick in the end part. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's well, weird to try to one to one assign the stuff, obviously. It, that's but. true. I think if we had to one to one, like Garrick would be the Louis. In this case, he'd be the uh, the Renault Captain Renault. Okay, and although yeah. Garrick doesn't have um, any authority um, in the Cardassian uh, order the, the way that um, Renault does in the um, Vichy France um, government, um, he's still as a, as the guy that contacts Cardassia. He's still you know sort of the representative of of the Cardassian interests. And both Louis and Garrick are pragmatists. Neither of them are explicitly allied with the people who are after um, the refugees, but they both see the value in playing along. And there's that great, there's that cool scene at the beginning, which is only, again, this is only the third time we've seen Garrick where he's having lunch with Bashir and they're talking about some other um, work of fiction or, or something that happened where Garrick comes down, you know, on the side of the state, you know, he's like, this guy betrayed his brother, but that's what you do because it's Cardassia and the state is the most important. You know, we see where he is at the beginning and, of course, where he changes at the end, much like Louis does in Casablanca. Yeah, both and both both those roles in that, that end specific part, I think, are they're just very exciting to me. Yeah. With Garrick, it's because he gets to totally ice a guy and it's so cool. <laughs> yeah. He just vaporizes a dude. It's so... It's like one of those ones where it's like, I like when they can make a phaser feel like violent, you know? Yeah. Even yeah. though it is just a guy disappearing on screen. It reminds yeah, me he of doesn't like, just like go sleepy time, fall down. Like he's just gone. Yeah. It's just like the one in, in Khan where the guy phasers himself where it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you then realize like how actually how messed up this technology is because it's like, yeah, we can just like literally disappear people. It's yeah. horrifying. Uh, I love that. And then I, I like the ending in Casablanca where it's like, I, I it goes, what you were saying about his characterization, because it's like Rick just had his gun pointed at him. But then at the end, it's like, this could be the start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> yeah, let's run off and fight the war together. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that they take the, um, the murder weapon out of uh, Rick out of Quark's hands in DS9 and give it to Garrick. I think it, you know, it makes sense because we're trying to establish uh, this episode specifically establishes that Garrick is as dangerous as Bashir and as the audience thinks. But it takes the the um, the the choice of uh, of the moral horizon of you know stopping this guy through murder out of the hands of Quark. Uh, and puts it in, in Garrick's hands instead. You know, it'd be like in Casablanca if Louis shot Major Strasse instead of our hero, Rick. Right. Yeah, it makes you wonder, because I, I, I'm re-watching, I, I want to see where Garrick goes, because... <laughs> he, he he does cap some more guys later on. <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing they... And he does, like, I think of, like, when he's got to, like, torture Odo, and they do... Oh, of, yeah. They oh, put yeah. a spin on it where he's like, I have to do this man and they become friends afterwards and he's like yeah (laughs) right which is weird (laughs) it is but it it kind of makes sense in the story i like i uh, here where it's like especially they establish like at least some question of like he might have like killed all of them you know yeah that was the plan but then a guy just showed up and was like yeah you didn't think this would 
you know, actually help you. And he's like, okay, well, um, now I guess I'm going to kill you. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, he would have done this really evil thing if not for just this one thing where the guy showed up, you know? Yeah. And and who knows, you know, how much authority he puts into like Turan saying that this was this was never going to be his, you know, ticket to get back to the uh, to the Empire. But it almost like establishes that um, there is ambiguity in Quark and there's capricious or in uh, Garrick and there's capriciousness in Garrick as well, because he does really like insult Garrick. (laughs) And, and, you know, Garrick could just still kill them and go, all right, well, still put in a good word for me or like contact somebody else. But instead it's like, (sighs) you son of a bitch. All right, you know what? You're going to die today. (laughs) Don't, Don't make fun of me. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like that. Uh, Quark and Garrick are an interesting pairing that don't happen very often mm. on the show. And all of the sort of um, ar- arguments about moral ambiguity that happen between Rick and Louie and Casablanca get boiled down into that one great scene where where Quark goes to Garrick's tailor shop, ostensibly to buy a dress. But of course, they're not talking about fashion. They're talking about, uh, you know, the the things that are going on in the station that they both know about. But they're doing it in these sort of coded terms. <laughs> yeah. uh, Garrick talking about, you know, th- how fashion is kind of capricious. And I'd, I'd hate to see your lady friend be a, a victim to fashion. I, yeah, that was really fun. That's that's some classic Garrick dialogue, really. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What stuck out to me is because, like, I am in the middle of, like, season five watching right now. And it's funny because it's like they establish here, like, oh, we haven't really, like, talked much, like. You haven't ever come by my shop. And now, like, that's just the normal thing. Like, you, you'll just see Cork in Garrick's shop, like, every once in a while, you know. Yeah. Like, getting a fitting or whatever. So this this was really uh, broke down some barriers for them, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, <laughs> you know, they, they have a start a beautiful friendship at the end of the episode. Yeah, we actually get to see <laughs> the follow they walk through. away from a murder scene, a murder that will never be solved. <laughs> I think it's funny that all the consequences that are sort of established in the episode are just kind of over when the episode ends. And that's, you know, that's what happens in uh, in uh, weekly TV. But um, Cisco, who is not a big part of this episode, um, but does sort of represent the law uh, as it goes on, uh, you know, he reveals that um, the Bajoran government wants to trade um, these Cardassians for some Bajoran prisoners. And so that's set up. And then Quark... Uh, much like much like Ilsa goes to Rick, Cork goes to Odo and basically begs him to let these people go, which Odo does. But it's like, does Odo get in trouble for that? Or does Odo have somehow the, the authority on the station to just go, no, no, we're going to let these people go. Like he wants to do it for <laughs> justice. But like, what do the institutions involved think about that choice? And then also, oh, we need a part nobody... Two. Nobody wants to know what happened to Turan. <laughs> Turan's just gone. <laughs> Nobody is, there's there's a cell phone yeah. ringing somewhere that'll never be answered. That's what's that's what's great about Garrick is like he like will commit murder and it's like, oh shucks, buddy. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. Like it's cool. There I guess they try to have some some consequences. The the they'll usually follow up things. You know, like in this episode, they're like they're talking about how people are losing faith in the Cardassian military was it or whatever and then it's like you know later we totally see that sort of implode so yeah the the Cardassian um resistance movement um that is you know working in secret you know in earlier episodes and then 
probably pretty much gets completely destroyed when the um, Obsidian Order uh, and, of course, the Dominion roll in and uh, take everything over. Yeah, there will be fallout to things. We can just assume there was some, you know, uh, red tape and paperwork that had to go on after this episode (laughs) happened. Yeah. Yeah, there's... um... You know, we talked about how it's okay to let characters act out of character or to introduce new facets to their character. And I think that this episode um, definitely does that with with Garrick and with Quark uh, to a degree. Also with Odo to show that he believes in justice. He's going to uphold the law, but he his personal code of justice uh, is more important than, um, you know, slightly more important than, you know, whoever he's working for or the or the. Um, the general peace that he's trying to uphold. And I think that that is, you know, we see a glimpse of that in the book that he's reading, which is the um, uh, Mickey Spillane book, I, the jury, uh, the first Mike Hammer book. And of course, mm-hmm. Mike Hammer is a hard boiled detective who, you know, has his own code. And so, yes, he's, you know, the gooey cop of all time, but he's also a guy who's <laughs> like, okay, this law's kind of dumb. We're just, I'm going to let you slide on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Odo, he can be, he can be convinced. <laughs> Eventually. I mean, he's it's funny that like he it's funny that people like Odo so much when he's such a prick for so long. Yeah, on the show. yeah. Like he's he's humanized, you know, literally uh, in later seasons. But he's just the guy that comes in and goes, I'm going to break your legs if you're doing anything bad. <laughs> yeah, he's they'll like mention some like, I don't know, they'll mention something that's like fascist and it'll be like hmm well that sounds like it's probably uh effective and good <laughs> like, yeah oh. right. he's like oh i like that yeah <laughs> he is like in favor of like many aspects of fascism and he's huh. like yeah 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 non-lethal rounds sounds good to me they're not lethal yeah yeah I, it's a hard sell when the, then they try to be like at first when because when they first start to be like and he's in love with kira and it's kind of sad and it's like oh buddy a little bit, but it's sort of like, man, you kind of suck. But then eventually, I think they get there to where you're like, all right, I feel bad for this guy. I suppose. Maybe when he starts being like, what's that one episode where he's like, uh, just so horny for going back home, you know? Yeah. He's like, ah, I gotta go home. Yeah. You're like, yeah. oh, man, he can't help it. He, he was born weird, you know? He was born that way. He's weird. Uh, I think the ultimate failing of the episode in comparison to something like Casablanca is that nothing can really change by the end because it's a weekly series. You know, we can show these new aspects to our characters, but we still have to go mostly back and reset to the way things were for next week. And meanwhile, you know, the two-hour movie Casablanca is... The whole point is that everybody has their lives changed by the end. Everybody is either on a new track or has their faith in their track confirmed, you know, and and uh, and reassured. And so, setting up a story that needs, you know, in its structure to lead to change, but not being able to do that on DS Nine because Quark's got to be, you know, a parasite sure, next yeah. week. <laughs> you got a problem. Yeah, though. I mean, I think I think they could do a good job usually of honoring that stuff in deep space nine, you know, like even if it's something minor, like you expect there to be more ramifications than there are actually are. I feel like they still do a good job of honoring it and like being like, where can we take the character from here? Like I think of Rom, for example, as someone like that. 
Or they it's missed like a, a chance to have Rom be the Sam. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know who is who's got Rom vibes in the movie is the bartender. Yeah. He's such totally. a little goofball. And I'm yeah. like, this is Rom for sure. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, you know who's got the this might seem mean, but I feel like Peter Laurie has the cork vibes. Because he's yeah. just like this weird little creepy guy. Oh, someday we got to sit down in like 1940s cast DS9. That's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we got two already. I feel like I've seen a meme like that somewhere, you know, where it's like, ah, it's a spaceship uh, in the future. And then, you know, <laughs> uh, classic actors uh, playing the different roles. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like fun. What? So they don't, uh, you know, we've established here at the end of the episode that they, they don't completely fit together. And that's fine. But... One of the most powerful moments in the episode, or in the in the movie, the uh, Marseillaise moment, where the entire bar, you know, sings the the French national national anthem to drown out the Nazis. Yeah, um, a, a moment that is moving in the film, but was especially moving for the international cast of the film, many of whom were refugees from Europe themselves in the production. Oh yeah, it's, this is made in like it came out in forty two, right? Yeah, it was made uh, – basically, the, the script was green light December 8th, 1941, and then uh, they rushed into production, and there's a lot of it, – it's propaganda. You know, it's it's pro-ally propaganda uh, for good reasons, but there's that line in the, the movie where Rick is getting drunk, and he's like, I wonder what's going on in America. It's December in 1941. I wonder what's going on in America. Yeah. And he, he talks about people sleeping all over the country, and it reminds me of – uh, I believe FDR's words about uh, how Pearl Harbor, you know, awakened a sleeping giant, and, you know, roused America to to join the war. But anyway, the point is, is that <laughs> the French were already in the war and they were having the uh, the, the bad end of it. And so this yeah. moment where they sing the Marseillaise like really uh, inspires them. What would the Marseillaise moment be in the DS9 episode? Oh, there. Oh, there is one. There is one. What is it? I I had that. I can't remember. There really. Because I'm not sure there would be one. Because I, I think that, you know, the, everybody always talks about the Federation, but I feel like patriotism is not often explored in Star Trek. You know, people aren't like, you know, hey, we're Federation and we're, we're better than everything else. I mean, I guess that's oh, maybe no. nationalism, but. Yeah, I was would, thinking more from uh, the Cardassian oh. uh, rebels. Like, I felt like they might have had some the, sort. Uh, no, maybe not. Damar's speech uh, to to the Cardassians in, in season seven. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It comes much later. But yeah. I felt like there was something like that, at least feeling with with those uh, characters being like, you know, we we can be better than this type thing. But yeah. 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 Maybe maybe there's not that in this episode. And this is the story of. The aftermath of a war, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, and honestly, I mean, I get, I get the purpose of that in the movie, and 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 it's it, and it works really well um, for establishing what these people care about, especially as opposed to Rick. But um, I don't know. I guess there's nothing in like I don't need that necessarily in this episode because <laughs> I don't I don't need to get behind. Um, I don't know. Like I we know. We kind of know the stakes here with that. You it, know? Would, it would help, though, wouldn't it? Because we've mm, yeah. got Natima and then we've got her students and we never get an idea of what they do or like, well, I know that they're 
they're students of political ethics, which I must imagine is a science in its infancy in Cardassia. Yeah. But we don't, we're told they're important and we're never really like given to understand like how, we're never shown how important they are. Uh-huh. They could have like the students of political ethics, but it's like similar to how they have a court system where it's not really real, you know? <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> or like the political ethics they teach are messed up and maybe they're trying to subvert that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, maybe. That's, cu- yeah. that's cute. <laughs> it's like being a communications major. Yeah, it's, you know, they're nothing. Um, I, maybe I'm super naive uh, saying this, but I guess I've never thought about it before as is... DS9 kind of like the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, where, you know, because it's always thought of, I, I always hear, hear it presented as, you know, DS9 is post-World War Two uh-huh. like after, you know, an occupation and the Bajorans are Jews. But like, what if it's post-World War One? the Bajorans are the French, you know, but also the, you know, the beleaguered peoples of Europe. And then the Dominion is the Nazis and Hitler and everything. And they come in <laughs> sure, and like yeah. get everything rolling again. And then that's the, the Dominion war is world war two. Maybe this has already <laughs> yeah. been figured out, but I, this well, just occurred to me now. That's that I see discussions like that a lot about like, okay, who are the Bajorans? Are they this? Are oh they yeah, this? yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. it's like, yeah, you can't, obviously so much isn't just inspired by world war two. Like yeah. I feel like a third of our episodes on our show is, is like yeah we really took this Warm Nazi reason. thing and yeah. made it a thing, but yeah. yeah obviously you can't you can't fully paste that all on and there's no real there's not really Bajorans in this episode, so yeah maybe, that, maybe that's why you can't have it in this one you know it, yeah it would have been really easy for them to make all these Cardassian characters Bajoran characters and I think that I'm not saying they should have I like the fact that they're Cardassians but it would still work you know um, the Cardassians are after them uh, Garrick informs on them in order to curry favor with the Cardassian high command um, but they didn't instead they made it Cardassians and I think that that's interesting and I also think that mm-hmm. having Cork be in love with a Bajoran woman fine you know he I guess he likes Kira we do see him with Pell in Necessary Evil, but I like the idea that, you know, there's that extra la- layer of interspecies romance where it's like <laughs> yeah. two totally alien species who are have a romantic relationship. Yeah, two, like a, a lizard and a toad. Two, two weirdos. <laughs> yeah, again and on. And we're going to make them smooch and mess up their makeup. Like, yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's a fun thing to show on screen as opposed yeah. to, like just a hot person with some nose ridges, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That's what you can get from Trek. <laughs> That's what Trek brings. So we, show me two monsters. <laughs> show me two <laughs> monsters. Just sucking face. <laughs> well, uh, at the end of the episode here, I thought that we would give listeners, if they haven't heard backtracking, a little preview of something <laughs> oh, yes. that we do at the end of episodes of backtracking. Um, something that makes Trek Trek is the technology of their future. Uh, sometimes it facilitates what the characters are doing. Like in this case, the uh, papers being a cloaking device makes perfect sense. But just as often, it's the complication that the characters have to deal with. So on every show, we randomly pick from a list of Star Trek technologies and we add what we get to the non-Trek media and we subtract it from the Trek episode and we see how each would be different. And we call this our technological exchange. And we've actually already submitted Casablanca to a technological exchange when we covered it on backtracking in comparison to the TNG episode, We'll Always Have Paris. 
what was what was the technology for that time? Oh man, I'd have to go way back okay. in the archives. Hopefully we don't get the same one. Yeah. And that was an episode that you know has a title that's a line from it, also features Picard, you know, meeting an old love, but this this DS9 episode is this, way more Casablanca than this that. This is but. like they lifted the story. Yeah. And yeah. that they were like what if there was a romantic What if we subplot? put ears on Rick and then we did that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here's our list of technology that we use. Uh, it's phasers, holodecks, tricorders, transporters, warp drive, replicators, communicators, shields, advanced medical technology, and androids. And if I use my random number selecting technology, I get a five, which is warp drive. If warp Whoa. drive existed <laughs> in the world of Casablanca... <laughs> Then how would it be different? I feel like it would be a lot easier to get out of you'd be taking a Yeah, you'd be taking a warp shuttle to Rick, Lisbon. <laughs> if the, Rick would probably not be as useful. Well, it. I, I think the the easy answer, and we never take the easy answer, is that it's just DS nine, right? Like this this uh. world, world war. This world war would be a space war. Uh, Casablanca would be a space station that sits at the crossroads of many nations, and it would just literally be the dream of the writers of this episode, making Casablanca uh, exist in the Star Trek universe. But since we can never do it quite that easy, uh, what else would we see? Uh, like I was, I was thinking like it would just be like the characters in the movie specifically would just not be important. I feel like, but, um, <laughs> I like, cause warp- I'm imagining a world where everything is the same, but yeah. then there is just warp drive. Like suddenly, like say the Wright brothers just invented warp drive on accident instead. <laughs> so <laughs> their, their 18 second flight at, at warp. Yeah. So people are watching Hawk. black and white movies. They're going. They're still going to Rick's. Wearing fedoras and yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. It would certainly be, um, you know, a, a military asset. And so at this point, I guess we can assume that, you know, the Allies and the Axis have equivalent technology. So, you know, there would be uh, warp uh, planes or, or warp uh, ships that possessed by the Americans and the Allies, and uh, the same with with the Nazis. I wonder if the Nazis, because uh, and Major Strasse makes a big part uh, point of this in Casablanca. He says, uh, you know, V Germans must get used to every climate. You know, what do you think about us being in New York? What do you think about us being here and there? <laughs> uh, maybe the Nazis would not only be trying to invade Europe and do that sort of thing, but they'd be trying to invade other planets, like. You know, we're going to send mm. some columns this way. We're going to send some columns that way, but we're going to send some columns I'm, up too. There's probably there's probably plenty of media that's like, what if the Nazis oh, yeah, are the in whole, space, right? The whole Wolfenstein <laughs> reboot series. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Is basically that. Yeah. That that made me think that this is kind of off topic a little bit, but that conversation and some of the conversations they had. Maybe I said this the last time we covered this, but like, it makes me think of even though this is propaganda. It, it pro ally propaganda. It kind of this and like I think we did like the enemy below or whatever. That yeah. I think that was what it was. But like of like what you can get out of making a movie at this time, where like the way they look at the Nazis, it's like they're a big threat. But then it's like this guy, this guy, our big American hero, is kind of like can like pal around with them a little bit. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. and be like, yeah, they're they're kind of like relatable, <laughs> these bad dudes. Um whereas like I feel like it would be impossible. It's like not until later when they tried to like reckon with 
the Holocaust and everything were like it it would you wouldn't get that as much. It'd be more like, you know, I guess you you wouldn't humanize the Nazis as much, you know. Yeah, um, Indiana Jones would immediately have to start punching him in the face, like, over yeah. and over and over again, yeah. But I think instead here we actually get kind of a realistic portrayal yeah. of, like, kind of maybe more an average American at the time who was like, I don't know, that's not my business, you know? Yeah, yeah, don't, be careful invading certain parts of New York. I don't think you'll do too well there, yeah. <laughs> um, also, just being a guy who is committed to maintaining a peace because... <laughs> and maybe the movie undercuts this, but ostensibly he needs everybody's business. But there's we, we do see that his uh, antipathy towards uh, fascists comes out in him not letting the Deutsche Bank guy into the gambling room or uh, the guy, his uh, maitre d' brings him a check. He's like, oh, these Germans paid with the check. And Rick's like, rip, 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 <laughs> throws the check away. Yeah. So yeah. clearly he's you know acting against his self-interest to express how he feels about these guys. But yeah, he does need to like... He does have to be the guy who's like, okay, Nazis over here, French people over here, fine. Everybody just drink your drinks. It's all right. Yeah, which is probably, I mean, that, I mean, I guess then that ties back into his speech. Like, what's going on with America? You know, like. Yeah. He, 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 I, maybe he represents all of the, uh, the American populace who are like not interested in war or something. Yeah. The, the, they're all asleep. And then for some reason we never really get the uh, the reason, but for some reason he can't go back there. I guess he's 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 can't return to America for some reason. He sounds cool, honestly. Like whatever he <laughs> was up to, like if he was like fighting fascists and like it, if he did that, he did something related to that that somehow ticked off the American government, and so he's probably cool. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart <laughs> plays a, a cool character. Uh, film at eleven. Uh, also, um, I think maybe if warp drive exists, then uh, the the technology of warp drive would be important. So perhaps they have um, they have access to a shuttle, something that can get them away from Casablanca Station. But now we need, you know, the, the part. You know, the, the the person, the couriers are carrying like, uh, you know, the, the the component that will make it work instead of just like the clearance to make it work. Can can you warp like? 2000 miles <laughs> or is that all imp- like what's the like minimum distance you can go warp that's a good question you just like <laughs> turn it on and turn it back off again real fast yeah. <laughs> yeah like could you warp from you know manhattan to paris or whatever well, to, to do warp you you've got to go at least uh the speed of light right that's warp one and yeah I think at first contact, you know, they're going warp one or maybe slightly over warp one because they fly out to around Pluto or Neptune and it takes them, you know, a couple hours like it would. Uh, Oh, okay. So, yeah. So like warp one on a galactic scale is extremely slow. Because I'm just thinking of like them because, you know, there's no other place they need to go right now. So I'm just trying to think of like Matt. Micro warping, you know, to get to the because they yeah. don't have teleporter or transporters, you know, right? Um, yeah, but they also don't have like in this world. I'm imagining they also don't have like regular airplanes. So would it be? Would there be like what about warp trains? Can you do that? <laughs> why? Why don't they have that? Those couriers that are killed on the warp train. <laughs> yeah, that would make for a great murder mystery. Murder on the warp train express or whatever. 
Maybe then them escaping to America across the Atlantic is not uh, as safe as you'd think, because, you know, the the arduous journey uh, on the plane from Lisbon that takes you all all the way across or the ship that they're going to take or whatever. Um, now they could be followed to America, you know, in the blink of an eye because you just take your your, your warp ship and oh. get there right away. Oh, warp ships would be cool, like a warp boat. <laughs> a warp boat. Okay. All right. You know what? I think we can stop it right with the invention of warp boat. I think we did it. This is a cool. This is a cool world. That I, <laughs> I think sometimes we invent a, a sci-fi world that we I, I want some to explore. Warp punk. Yeah. So assuming that it's not the just exact negative picture of what we just created, what does the world of DS9 look like without warp drive? Oh, <laughs> we we run into this situation a lot where it's like. How would what if we take away one of the pillars of the Star Trek universe? <laughs> how yeah. things are facilitated? Granted, this all takes place on one area, but it's like would would the Cardassians and the Bajorans even be in relative lo- like closeness to each other anymore? I think it's safe to say that the Bajorans had warp technology when they were invaded. I would imagine that it wouldn't be as advanced as Cardassian stuff. Oh. But if neither of oh. them have warp, and let's say the Cardassians have something approximate or something kind of fast, they could go, all right, we're going to launch all of our ships to the to the Bajoran system, which is, you know, four years, four light years away. So in, you know, four and a half light years, <laughs> we'll unfreeze our troops and a begin really the invasion. Slow invasion. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You would have to think about it more in terms of, you know, we can't no. just show up wherever. You know what would happen? The Bajorans with their superior solar sail technology become <laughs> dominant in the region. And sure. they, they become... The superpower. Yeah. You know, we did say warp drive. We didn't say the existence of warp travel. And in the episode Explorers, uh, Jake and Cisco. That's an accident. You know, yeah, their ship, they find some kind of conduit, some kind of natural phenomenon that allows them to travel at warp. So maybe the Bajorans take over Cardassia. The Bajoran Empire. Yeah. That would be, a, that's actually a great, like, if they could have another mirror universe, you know. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's see that. The Bajorans, uh, perf- and they've perfected these sails at this point. So they're going like fast warp speeds with their solar sails. Eventually, they find their celestial temple and it, cre- it ushers in a golden age oh my of, God. of Bajoran society with the Cardassians uh, as their client species. What happens when they travel through the wormhole and discover the Dominion? Well, does the Dominion, the Dominion have warp too? <laughs> that's a good question would the dominion yeah would the dominion as an entity be possible without warp drive i don't know maybe i mean they seem like well actually honestly maybe um okay this is even thinking even further but you know like part of the reason they're so crabby is because they're like oh we were changelings and like everyone made fun of us and bullied us or whatever <laughs> like yeah. maybe they don't ever meet anyone and they can just live happily on their little goo planet. <laughs> this is this is this <laughs> this seeming failure has turned into one of our most expansive uh, what ifs, <laughs> if you will. But let me let me add to it. Uh, in the episode blah blah what it's called, uh, when Odo meets Loss, Loss has assumed an organic form that can travel at warp speeds. 
Remember? So no. maybe the what? Remember the changelings? Maybe the changelings are just doing fine because they can fly around themselves. You know? Oh, at they warp can speed. warp. Yeah. The changelings, they can be out in space. They're they're fine. Well, when he meets uh, Laz, you know, who's a foundling like him, uh, he's mm-hmm. just cruising around doing his thing like in space and just kind of goes, hey, what's, what's up? What does he what does he turn into when he's in space? Is he just he, like I can't remember what he looks like, but OK, I got I, I got to get to that one. Yeah, that. Yeah, that was I would That's turn like into 60, a jet. <laughs> yeah, he just turns into a space jet. Yeah. So Whoa. now you've got instead. Maybe they wouldn't have. um the I don't know if you can like turn into an entire ship that people could ride in, but like if <laughs> oh you, my god! But you would have like uh, you know uh, D- Dominion uh, or um, uh, Founder Crack uh, shock troops. So like you know you've got a planet that's supposed to you know be a part of you, and you tell them what to do, and they try to rebel. So you send like ten you know uh, warp speed. Uh, changelings, and they all just land, and then like turn into blades and knives. And that just is T-1000. so sick. T one thousand. Anybody that tries to fight them. So in this world, we've got them, and they're kind of dominant way earlier because no one else can mess with them. And then you got the Bajoran Wind Sail or Solar Sail Empire. Yes, and they could have a big war. Yes, this, this is sweet. I want this alternate timeline. I remember. I remember now when Laz was in his spacefaring form, he he looks like an organic, you know, like alien type ship or like you know, squiddy thing going around. So yeah, you've got Bajoran light sails versus changeling uh, spacefaring squid people, and they could like they could easily be like, all right, now our wings are blades, and they're like. Yes. Or they could turn into giant fists. They could turn into giant fists. And punch. (laughs) (laughs) And just punch the sails. Because those things look fragile. (laughs) It wouldn't be a technological exchange without (laughs) fists with giant ships with giant fists. Wow. This is the best one we've ever done. We did it. This is the best we've ever done. And it's not even on our show. So what a waste. (laughs) But anyway. Actually, no, it's not. Go listen to our show where we do really good ones. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, let's talk about my space dad. Can beat up your space dad. You've said that before that uh, Cisco is your favorite captain, and he's kind of on yeah. the fringes of mm-hmm. the episode, and he's behaving himself for the most part. Like unlike the Cisco we see in later seasons, he's uh, obeying the wishes of the Bajoran uh, provisional government. He's ready to give up the hostages, even though he doesn't want to. Uh, but he changes later. Uh, using the Ca- Casablanca setting and the idea of World War II, is Cisco the Churchill of DS Nine's World War Two? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, yeah. He's I mean, just... he's certainly he's certainly the General MacArthur because he, you know, leaves the station. He says, "I'll return," and he he comes back and gets his baseball. Oh, we're talking about throughout Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. I guess he's like the guy. Yeah, who you think of as like, oh, we stood uh stood right face to face with them and stood up to him. I guess. Yeah, we'll fight them in the nebulas. And, maybe he's you know... the, maybe he's the Stalin. <laughs> uh he's our stalin yes <laughs> he, they were they were right on the you know the front lines of that wormhole with all the dominion coming out and everything you know that's true um they would be uh the asia which you uh you don't invade asia come on yeah <laughs> interesting well, that's, I mean, that's a whole nother show. Uh, I'll have to try to manipulate some kind of... Yes. <laughs> some episode of Enterprising Individuals where we do a risk, a uh, Star Trek risk. 
Uh, I'll write that down. Star Trek Risk. Um, now that we reach the end of the show, you'll receive a promotion to the rank of Lieutenant Ooh. Commander for your previous service. And we've talked about uh, your duties on the ship before. I think previously you were um, barbacking for Guinan. Uh, <laughs> then uh, in your in your um, capacity as a uh, as a public relations person, we had you commissioned as an ambassador. Oh yeah. If you were a barback uh, in Rick's Cafe Americaine in Casablanca. <laughs> Uh, do you think the tips would be good? I think I think so because I think um, it seems like a good place where people are, um, you know, kind of like people seem like I don't know. You can just come here and not really have to think about what's going on, you know. And you had sure in and it, they really established it as like a real kind of international vibe, you know. Yeah, you've got yeah. the the Moroccans, uh, you know. I bet the Nazis tip great. Um, <laughs> oh boy! Uh, I, don't I know. feel like that's a controversial statement, but <laughs> no, okay. <I'm> not... <laughs> yeah, no, they seem like no. I'm just no. They or, be, or maybe maybe. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe you get the you know the opening scene of um, Schindler's List. You know, where it's just uh, it's a bit of bacchanalia. Uh, there's a lot of uh, marks being thrown around <laughs> yeah. and stuff. I would think that like obviously some of the customers would be impoverished because they're trying to save money to get oh, out of town. Yeah, that's true. Other customers have profited off of those people, and so maybe they're throwing the money around and it's a good time. Or maybe there's, there's just a joie de vivre. You know, after here's, you have everybody sing the, the Marseillaise, suddenly everybody's throwing francs everywhere. Here's here's Well, there, one, there's the gambling, I think. Yeah, there is gambling. But two, here's the difference is... Um, between Rick and Quark, once again, is they had to shut down, and Rick makes a point in the movie to be like, "Well, everyone still gets paid, right?" Which would not right. happen at Quark's. So no, um, no. Quark seems like fun to go to, but not to work at. At least until the union is established or whatever. Right. It's like doesn't seem they seem all ha- pretty happy there. So even if I wasn't getting tipped, I bet, I bet Rick takes care of you regardless. So maybe he pays you enough. That regardless of the tips, you're you're good. You know, the like, tips are just gravy. Yeah, like yeah, Sam is just happy to be there. Someone someone offers him more money, you know. But it's like, no, I'm taken care of here, and I'm happy. Yeah, so I, I love how I'll, I'll bar back at Rick's. <laughs> they established that, but I but I love that Rick says like, uh, you know, I I don't uh, I don't trade in people or whatever when uh, when. Um, Ferrari's trying to buy Sam off of him. And then of course There's, at the, end, at the yeah. end of the film, he's like, Sam goes with the bar. <laughs> like you just you just bought <laughs> Sam from me. So yeah, no, you know. Just uh, so not to the right guy, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Also the mood is very variable <laughs> at Rick's, much like a um a Buffalo Wild Wings during a playoff game. Uh <laughs> There's like a, there's like a literal shooting and then Rick's like, don't worry about it. And everybody's like, all right, great. They just go back to singing and, and drinking. There's a shooting. Uh, then you've got like Sam playing this beautiful music, but then you've got like Nazis again, yeah, like singing their national anthem or whatever they were singing. And the bar owner is coming out and yelling at the piano player and he stops playing the song he's playing and plays a different song. Yeah. It's weird vibes for sure. Yeah, but absolutely. I think, I think I would get through by, uh, I think just all the coworkers there seem really great. Like I would love hanging out with that one guy, the like the fatter guy with glasses and the bartender. Yeah. Sam. Like they all seem like fun. Yeah, it's a vibe for sure. Like that'd be one where you close the bar down and you're like, Well, there's the curfew, but where it's like, let's let's hang out and have a few more We're drinks. Just staying you know? here. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Or we gotta go to the meeting. 
Oh, the meeting, the, yeah. The resistance meeting, yeah. I told I would go to that for sure. <laughs> Regardless of the Nazi tips on <laughs> yeah. the resistance. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lieutenant Commander Fame, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISDPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Yes, uh, I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Gooey Fame. And what's coming up on virtual theater? What are you talking about in the future? Oh, we've we've we had a hard time getting together recently because uh, Andy got married. So congratulations oh. to him. Congrats to him. So, but we're gonna be recording again soon, and I think we're wrapping up uh, the last season of that Castlevania show. Oh, sure, sure, which was a That's lot cool. of fun. So. I, I haven't finished it yet, actually, but I I I, I love it. So, uh, and what's coming up on backtracking? Backtracking. Um, we recently recorded one where we talked about uh, it compared to the Voyager episode, The Thaw, which it. was a <laughs> Stephen it, King's Stephen it. King's It. <laughs> I guess I should specify yeah. the nine, 90s miniseries. Um, yeah, and that was a lot of fun and surprising. And then uh, upcoming, I think we're we're doing a, a trek a, a trek looking at trek type situation where it's sure. uh, lower decks veritas and the drumheads. So that'll be kind of we do those once in a while too because of course trek uh, steals from itself. Yes, especially uh, a show like uh, Lower Decks, which, <laughs> which is, is a, just like remember this. On. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a commentary <laughs> on trek. Well, thanks again for joining me, and we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Mm-hmm.